Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and happy Tuesday, my friends. This is Amy Lee San Juan, and I'd like to welcome you back to another informative episode of Cisco Champion Radio, where we provide insights and visibility into products and solutions across the Cisco portfolio and trending topics across our industry. If you like our podcast, please follow us and feel free to share your favorite episodes with your colleagues and friends. Have thoughts on what we should cover in a future episode? Let us know on Twitter at, at Cisco Champion. All right, folks, today we are talking about Talos Incident Response in particular. We're going to talk about our suite of proactive and reactive incident response services that deliver the visibility and threat intelligence you need to help prepare, respond, and recover from a breach. To help us unpack what you want to know, we have three phenomenal hosts and a very special guest with us today. So without further ado, let's get to introductions. Ben, let's start with you. Who are you? My name is Ben Story. I'm a senior network security engineer with Red Eye Network Systems. And you can find me on the Twitter at NTWRK80. Alrighty. GJ, you're up next. Hi, my name is Gert-Jan de Boer, GJ in short, because my name is unpronounceable. <laughs> I'm a CTO for uh, a Dutch value-added reseller, and we focus on networking and security solutions. All right, Mark. Who are you? My name is Mark Lüscher. I'm working for Fresenius Medical Care. Uh, my role is I'm an architect in a network security cyber incident response space. All right. Okay, Liz, it is fantastic to have you. Uh, when you're not co-hosting Beers with Talos, what do you do at Cisco? Thank you. Um, I'm very happy to be here. So my role at Cisco is the global practice lead for Cisco Talos incident response. So I'm pretty sure there's a few things we can unpack there that people might have questions about. Uh, probably first is what is Talos, right? So everybody knows Cisco. Um, not everybody knows Talos. Um, I think you could consider Talos the backbone of Cisco security. All uh, It is the largest threat intelligence organization outside of governments. Um, and then to go further, further down the hole, then what I do is I help uh, manage the incident response practice. So that is our customer-facing incident response team. So helping our, our customers on their worst days respond to breaches and also help them prepare proactively to uh, to maybe prevent them from happening. So you know a thing or two about today's topic. I hope so. <laughs> really, really hope so. All right. So before the champs kick off the conversation, um, I wanted to ask you for any background or context you think would be good to have. So like, what are we seeing in the industry 
Are people becoming nicer and therefore security threats are decreasing? Um, I think, you know, that's <laughs> there, there could be many ways I could answer that question. Um, I will say right now we are seeing an active shift in the types of actors we're seeing because of the war in Ukraine. That is definitely making a shift in the industry as a whole. But um, no, bad actors are still out there. They are still trying to break things. So uh, we as defenders uh, still have plenty to do. So Liz, um, you know, as as a uh, reseller, you know, we, we deal with customers. You know, they call us up in a in a panic. Oh my God, something's happened, and you know, they're asking us. You know, well, who who do we call? And we, you know, our first first answer is, well, have you talked to your cyber insurance people? And as long as they don't say, "Oops, cyber insurance, what's that?" Um, then the next thing is, you know, we say, okay, have they assigned you somebody already, or do you need somebody? And I, a lot of times what we're finding is, you know, the cyber insurance companies push really hard to use their their people, sort of like the auto insurance companies want you to use their uh, shop. Is that required or, or can, can customers still call Talos even if they're in the middle of a situation and haven't, you know, set things up ahead of time? Uh, you know, we are certainly available 24-7 and your insurers. So here's the deal. The cyber insurance industry is a... Uh, what's a word I'm looking for? Um, chaotic. Chaotic would be a nice way of saying you know what what's going on with the cyber insurance industry, and that's because it's still relatively new, right? So they're basing things on other insurance worlds, right? But so you have people who like made auto insurance and house insurance, like well, how do I protect a business from a cyber attack? And so like you pointed out with cars or with houses, if you have some damage that's done to your property, you get a preferred list of vendors from uh, from your insurance company, and that same thing happens with cyber insurance they have a preferred list of vendors um but technically you know you can have whatever cyber whatever cyber forensics team you want on that they're um it is a lot easier if you negotiate this ahead of time so you know strongly advise that if one Find out if you have a cyber insurance policy because, Ben, you know, as you said, that question of, oh, do I have it? That I hear that more times than I should from security people going, we're not sure if we have cyber insurance. So, well, I know what that is, uh, know who it is, and then um, you can use your preferred, uh, get your preferred forensics team on that on that list ahead of time, and that should help. Um there have been, you know, cases where we have seen insurance companies saying no. Um, but as of right now, there isn't, you know, it's a very weird legal gray area because there's nothing saying they can't do that. But there's also, you know, people, you know, especially in America's, you know, anti-competitive practices and all sorts of fun, fun things that are sure to come down the road. Um, I'd like to hear, you know, your guys' perspective of just dealing with the insurance companies. What are some of the problems you've had? Or, if, you know, if you've had good experiences would love to also hear like how that has actually helped you prepare in advance so for me it's always the question who's the customer in that case because uh when you are you're a cyber insurance company you want to gather some evidence about what happened what measures were in place how uh how did the customer act and uh i'm not always sure if the the company that the cyber insurance uh provides has your best interest at heart. I think that's a very good point. Who, you know, who are they working for? Are they working for you or are they working for that cyber insurer, you know, who doesn't really maybe want to pay you money? It's if I look a little bit at our case from the customer side is 
When we started with cyber insurance a few years back, I think it was a five or ten page questionnaire. It was pretty much easy to be filled out and you never heard back. You paid your premium, everything was fine and dandy. Over the last two years with all the incidents and attacks going on, from a few page questionnaire, I think now it's something like a 30 or 40 page document. And as before, they only asked questions. They are requesting now evidence. That means you need to demonstrate them that your firewall policies are adequate and robust and are following one of the best practices out there. What we have also seen is our cyber uh, insurance no longer tells us whom to use. They say the market is shifting that much. Pick the ones you have the best feeling and you get the best results. So they no longer lock us in. They even say, we can help you if everything else fall, falls through. But it's in your interest to have somebody lined up already who can help you when it's needed. That's really interesting, especially the first part, right? So it's almost be sounding like it's becoming a security audit, right? Because we didn't have enough security audits. But um, so do you feel like, you know, as you know, security like companies and like internal people that there are going to need to be like we have separate people who just deal with auditors. Is there going to be a need for these people who are just dealing with the cyber insurance questionnaire? Is that going to be a full time job? I would say it's not only a full time job. I think it will will be a team going forward because the moment you need to produce evidence in regular intervals, it's like a permanent IT audit. You just have somebody else sitting in your neck, which pretty much can say, if you don't produce it by then, you are no longer insured. So they have pretty much a very strong way of communicating that to your company and making sure it happens. Where are the requirements coming from? Since I haven't seen, like, I haven't been the recipient of this document. So are they basing them on NIST standards or where are they getting this, the questions that they're asking? I would say it's NIST, it's CSA, it's really... They involve, they really try to keep up with the top leading standards and they try to break them down into manageable pieces. And then they use a little bit the approach, probably 70% of that you have and 30% of that you don't have. And depending on those 30%, they can say either you need to have it in place, otherwise you can't be insured. Uh, the other options say they reduce coverage because it's more risk for them. And it goes a little bit along those lines. Have any of you had an experience where you had to file a claim with cyber insurance? And then did your rates go up just like if you got into a car accident? Um, so, um, unfortunately, incidents happen. I don't want to more want to go more into detail there um, what we have seen is that the premium of cyber insurance went up probably by about 300 percent over the last 12 months and the less you can comply with what they consider best practices the higher your premium will be and 
that's the new fact, that's the new reality. And that means you need a dedicated team pretty much to make sure you can permanently involve and go from there. Yeah, we're, we're seeing something very similar with our customer base that <clears throat> it's it's definitely the prices are going up. And when they do have incidents, they go up even more. more. Um, and I, I think one of the things we're seeing is like you talked about earlier with the, you know, like the giant worksheets, you know, security audits, basically, we're seeing a lot of our smaller customers that are just just struggling, struggling to meet the requirements and meet you know, to even fill out the paperwork, to have the expertise to understand what they're being asked to do. Um, but on the flip side, we're seeing a lot of these smaller school districts, you know, the K-12 space, that have traditionally struggled to get any buy-in from their administrations for security, whether that be funding or just even being allowed to implement security. Um, they're suddenly saying, well, your cyber insurance company says this, and they're using that as the, the leverage. Um, it's, it's sort of like back in the day when HIPAA first started and all the uh, healthcare companies said, no, it's HIPAA. It's HIPAA. It's, it didn't matter what it was. If we could point to HIPAA, we got money and we got it fixed. Um, and so I'm seeing the same thing now with cyber insurance companies, you know, using them as the bad guy, sort of like a private regulate, regulatory body almost. Well, I mean, you think about it, especially you know, education, that hasn't been regulated, right? So for the most part, I would say like a school district, a school has not gone through an audit for a security like, say, someone who has to be SOX compliant or someone who has to be HIPAA compliant. All those things that other industries have gone to now with cyber insurance, it may be actually bringing security up across the fields, which is a, an interesting positive take, right? Uh, GJ, I think you're nodding your head over there, so... <laughs> Yeah, I am. I fully agree. I think on this side of the world, uh, we are seeing kind of the same things. So something maybe I want to add is, you mentioned HIPAA, uh, you mentioned cybersecurity. I think my third buzzword in that area would be GDPR compliance. So those are the main three drivers which currently allow us to invest. Well, and I think, you know, the other big driver, if we're talking about things that, that bring people up, will be, you know, the new requirements within the U.S. as far as, you know, re mandatory reporting for breaches within, you know, uh, within critical infrastructure, which is a lot. Uh, so definitely going to be seeing uh, some changes coming out of that. So, you know, we may actually see some, you know, security problems getting solved, but, you know, I'm, I, I'm not, you know, worried for my job security because I think there will always <laughs> there will always be a need. So so assuming that you know a client has done their due diligence ahead of time and have you know contracted with Talos incident responses, you know, uh, as a partner, um what happens, you know, year to year? Let's let's say, you know, twenty twenty two, we get lucky, nothing's going on, we haven't had an incident, but we've you know we've paid money, you know, is that just you know, sort of out the window and, you know, you you hope you never need it, but it's there if you need it, but, or is there something that you guys can do with that investment uh, on a yearly basis if, if you don't need it for IR? Sure. And I think, you know, this is what's called the retainer model, right? So people, if you're not familiar with it in terms of, you know, for a technical company, um, it would be people like having a lawyer on, on retainer in case something happens. So that's the idea with an incident response retainer is that you have experts on hand if something happens and you need to pull the fire alarm and get somebody over here. But with that retainer model, basically, generally what, what most 
people within this industry do is you get a retainer for a certain amount of hours, right? And we offer that in, you know, different different package sizes. It could be small, medium, large, depending on your needs. And with those larger hours, we want to make sure that they don't go to waste. So we work with our customers to proactively plan their security investment for the year. So that could be, hey, we want to do an annual assessment of our incident response plan, which everyone should be doing. And most people are required to now. We talk about regulatory agencies. So you can leverage your hours for that. Uh, because we are Cisco Talos, we also have the ability, um, a retainer customer could use those hours to access our intelligence on demand, which does some great things. Uh, we can, you know, do deep, dark web searches, dark, you know, uh, dark, um, deep research, other things to see what's you know, going on about you in the wild, or also just to give you additional intelligence insights to things you're seeing in your environment or then we can go into like super training things. You know, we can do tabletops with those hours. Our team also offers training for cyber experts. We call that cyberine. So we actually like take small classes and teach them how to do forensics. So you can actually increase your own team. Um, and then we can do offensive stuff too. Um, so those are things like red teams and pen tests. So there's a lot of options that you could use those hours for if you didn't have an emergency. And I think, you know, the idea is if you're protecting if you're doing those proactive works, you're less likely to have an emergency. Um, but, you know, a certain, th you know, having that expertise in your back pocket, ready to go, you want to be able to respond to an incident as quickly as possible. So have not having to worry about going through the contractual obligations that come into business, right? If you're like, I want to purchase a retainer, well, you need to get approval for that, right? That's going to have to go through your CFO or wherever that's coming from. So if you do that ahead of time, then you have that additional layer of assurance and somebody who is there to help you out. Um, you know, also, you know, our teams, you know, like I said, you know, we're partnered with Cisco Talos. Well, we are Cisco Talos, but um, so our incident response teams are not just forensic analysis, right? They are intelligence analysts. They're incident commanders who are there to lead your coordination. They're project managers. There's leaders and really just this full power of Cisco to back you up. We can bring in Cisco technology if you don't have it or if you have whatever you have, our experts can pretty much we can we can jump in and work with anything. So you kind of outline, you know, the, the, the package of who, who's involved. Can you kind of like give us a quick um, explanation of, okay, I've, I, I'm, I'm a customer. I've got Telus on, you know, retainer. The, the worst has happened. You know, I'm, you know, everybody's running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And I pulled the, pulled the, the cord and said, help. What, what does that response look like? So, and I think this is, you know, I've talked about this at different conferences before to you that, um, that engagement with an external forensic firm, ha having those conversations beforehand to understand what this process likes, it will help you be better prepared, right? So if you're engaging with a third-party forensic provider, no matter who they are, there's going to be certain things that are going to happen. First off, we're going to have a conversation, right? That's always starts with, what's happening, right? So what are you seeing now? And for us, we also really want to know what is your business impact? Because that's going to help us develop that strategy for how we're going to be responding. Because we are going to be giving you guidance on containment and remediation while we're doing our investigation. You know, with the everyone always has that incident response life cycle and it's like a circle, but really it's just like multiple lines running concurrently. So we need to figure out what, what we're having to 
at the start and what's going to be at the finish. So the first thing we want to know is what have you seen? What's the business impact? Then we want to know what's your technology capabilities. So it'll be, what do you have in place for visibility, right? Do you have logs? Do you, and in those logs, then do you have logs for the endpoints? Do you have firewall logs, et cetera? But it's all going to depend on what you're seeing. So we have to have an understanding of that. With our team, we deploy what we call an incident commander, right? So we think it's really important during any kind of crisis management that you have that one key person that has can see everything and directs those conversations. So whether or not that's within our team or within your own team, highly recommend that as part of your incident response strategy, just to have that person who can coordinate resources and really drive it also not just from the technical side, but from the business side, right? So going, this is what we're seeing from the adversary. This is how it's impacting business. So we can help everybody make those right decisions that are going to come up during an incident response. I'm sure as all of you know, there's, you know, really IR is risk management when it comes down to it. Like we are trying to limit risk within the environment and then make decisions on how those risks, what we're going to do to mitigate will impact business. Because if I'm going to go up to you and say, hey, I need you to shut down the, the internet for your entire company, the guy who works in IT or who runs your network can't make that decision, right? I need to talk to somebody who understands what that business impact is going to be. So we're going to start having those questions. And there's obviously this process is very long. So pause me at any point if you want, if you have questions. But um once we finish that scoping part, we'll decide what technology we're going to bring in and or what technology we want to collect, what pieces of data telemetry. So it could be we're going to run some custom scripts to pick up some some memory um, artifacts, other things like that. Or we could be actually you know deploying secure endpoint, deploying you know um, Stealthwatch analytics to get NetFlow uh, umbrella if we want to look at DNS. And so really trying to coordinate those things is is a big piece. And then once we start getting that data in and we'll start hoovering it um, we are basically going through like fast analysis and trying to figure out have we seen this before is this something new and then making those strategies based on that there are some things which you know are going to be kind of standard because there are just some things that you know I'm sure as you guys know like you you see certain things pop up and you're like oh this is they are heading towards ransomware and so these are the typical things we see during a ransomware and like start doing this right now this will probably help us contain this for now and then we can keep it analyzing and make more specific recommendations but i'm going to pause there because i just said a lot so questions thoughts yeah so in my experience uh, a thing that a lot of customers struggle with is that during an incident they're in chaos and they they really struggle with keeping a, a log of uh, uh, what action did i take uh, what uh, machines did we take offline? What did we see? There's there's this big process of evidence gathering, uh, all, not only of what's happening with the adversaries, but what the actions are you taking? Uh, especially when uh, afterwards you need to file a claim with your cyber insurance company. Is this something that's a big part of uh, the incident response team? Well, that's why we have that incident commander, right? So somebody who is making sure they're not necessarily the ones who are documenting all this, but we have that verification to go through of say, you know, has this been done? So definitely that coordination piece is huge. And really, I think having that person who takes that burden away from your team, it can help make sense of that chaos. And you're right. It's 
that chaos and that not knowing what's going on is what makes these incidents so stressful because especially, you know, if you, no matter who you are, somebody is asking you what's happening. And if you can't tell them what's going on and what the next steps are going to be, that is what puts you in those really terrible situations. Right. So my comment is Liz, um, Ben mentioned the education industry, um, what would be a good starting point for a company which currently does not have an incident response process? How would you start to at least get something going? Well, I mean, one, there are a lot of partners out there. And if, you know, and I think Ben could probably talk this, but within, you know, what we call SLED, which is, you know, the education government area, uh, there are a lot of places that you can go to to get your get yourself started, right? Your first place you're going to want to start is with that incident response plan. So that is really just having that conversation with your organization of, what do we do if there is a cyber incident? And I think one of the best ways to figure that out is to have a tabletop. So um, you can do these yourselves. There are like there's a number of like card games and even things that you can do that are like really fun ways to get that you know to get those conversations going and figure out what would I do if some if we had ransomware? What would I do if you know my passwords were taken? You know those types of things, and then start you know thinking about that process and documenting it. Um, and Mark is holding up Backdoors and Breaches, which is a super fun game. Yeah, it's really, to me, like, incident response, those first things are, you know, what am I trying to, to, to protect? And what are this, you know, how am I doing that? But Ben, I want to, you know, get your thoughts on this since you're really involved in it. So, I mean, from the SLED point of view, there, there, and, and really anything that's, quote unquote, critical infrastructure in the United States, um, Homeland Security's teams, whether that be CISA or the FBI or whomever within that umbrella, they really have the capabilities to come in and help you plan that stuff. Um, the I, I have had clients that have had full penetra penetration tests done by the federal government that um, would put some of our um, private industry um, pen testers to shame. Um, they, I'm not sure if they're using stuff that the NSA collected or what it is, but they 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 find ways in that's for sure. So um, and and they then they help you, you know, figure out how to block things and and how to mitigate and how to how how to do do things better. And it's an you know it's always an iteration. You 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 are never a hundred percent. You just got to keep doing it. But these these agencies are out there trying to help people. Um, they're getting more funding now thanks to the fact that everybody's getting attacked and it's making the news cycle. You know, probably, probably once a day somebody some large you know corporation gets gets ransomware and it gets splattered all over Facebook. Um, so, you know, the federal government is putting a lot of money into it in the U.S. I'm sure it's similar overseas in, in Europe, especially with, you know, all the attention that uh, the EU puts on data privacy. So Yeah, that's true. But uh, here in the Netherlands and in Europe, it's more scattered. It's more uh, country by country based approach. So uh, we have a national cybersecurity center that gives advice and uh, provides wh white papers and uh, information. Uh, but uh, every country does something on their own. So uh, one of the things that we're part of is uh, is a collective in the Netherlands with uh, at the moment uh, around 80 uh, companies that focus on cybersecurity, uh, which is called CyberSafe Netherlands. And we're trying to 
uh, exchange information between cybersecurity companies, trend intelligence, and uh, things we're seeing, operational information, and share them with the government, trying to strengthen the whole security posture of the country. But it's a whole country by country basis, so it's a whole different landscape on this side. That's really interesting. I mean, I I like getting that perspective of like what is something else that you're seeing over there. Um, I know within the U.S., uh, CISA has just put out a number of playbooks, which can actually they can be a great starting place, and you can probably access them no matter what. Well, I won't say no matter what country you're in, but in most countries, you can access uh, the U.S. government's uh, go to CISA, and they've got some really great playbooks that are designed for critical infrastructure. But I think they're applicable to to many different things. So looking a little bit, uh, looking a little bit on where we see the biggest exposure, I still would say it's safe to say that 80% threats which are trying to come in, come in via email. Is that something, Liz, you would confirm or? Oh, we, that is still our biggest initial vector. And I don't think that's going to change because there's a human being in the middle of that. Right. And not, you know, remember, adversaries are also human beings. No matter what technology they are employing, at the other end somewhere is somebody with some kind of brain, hopefully. Um, It'd be very scary if they did not have brains. And that's a whole other problem. Um, So, um, but with phishing, you know, there is a person who is trying to get past another person and they have to make decisions of what is good and what is bad. And I hate using the word sophisticated when it comes to security because I think it is overused. However, when it comes to crafting phishing emails, there are some very sophisticated actors who can man in the middle conversations, make it sound like you're coming from somebody else or just taking advantages of situations. Certainly we saw that with COVID. We have seen that with Ukraine where those become the phishing lures. Uh, it's ta- you know tax season just finished in the U.S., um, so that was you know that was another lore. So there's always going to be that opportunity to have the human weakness be the area of that we get into. And unfortunately, there's obviously some technology things and there's some security training you can put in there. But who hasn't, you know, who hasn't fallen for a phishing email? Who hasn't just at one point been like, oh, no, I didn't mean to click that, you know, and just like everybody's done that. And so why I always think we should not victim shame like the people who, you know, sorry, Becky in marketing that you click that it's not your fault. You know, you had a bad day and you got past you. They got past you. Um, but really is just remembering that that and also, you know, making sure that those things are logged and collected so that when they, that does happen, we can go back and see what actually was occurring after somebody clicked that link. Right. Yeah, but what you're saying is the uh, you're seeing sophistication in the whole uh, in the whole space. It's uh, not only in uh, more sophisticated uh, phishing emails, uh, they're getting better and better. But one thing that amazed me uh, somewhere in the last year is that I saw uh, browser plugins that were bought by threat actors and they keep running them with a couple of updates. And then after six months or something, they insert some kind of backdoor, hoping that some administrator level people run it in their browser and they're getting smarter and smarter. Well, 
I mean, I don't even know necessarily say they're being smarter and smarter. It's the cat and mouse game, right? So if we are patching up things and they're going to be looking for another way in. And so there and that becomes the defender's issue is we have all of these avenues that we're looking to protect and to investigate. And an adversary really just needs to get lucky once. Definitely. And I think it's then how quickly can you react? How quickly can you stop it? Which goes back to the incident response process. It's the incident response process. And it's also just knowing your environment, right? How do I know what good looks like and how to what what is bad, right? And so I mean, not gonna again, not shaming any of my customers, but um, in a lot of the more chaotic incident response situations, are those places that don't have a good handle on what their assets are, what those assets talk to, uh, what else can talk to those assets, right? Especially with uh, third party, you know, we talk about you know, the third party risk a lot, and we've certainly seen that escalate over the last years with Log4j and SolarWinds, really just highlighting the vulnerabilities that that connection to the outside world can bring into you. Yeah, you're talking about, you know, kind of getting a handle on assets. I think that's crucial for security in general. Um, as, as a consultant, we go in a lot where we put a firewall um, onto a span port and just look at what is going out of that network. And then we make a report and we start talking to them and said, okay, did you know that you have, you know, whatever that may be, it may be team viewer, maybe whatever, you know, are you using that? Is that something you are actively aware of? Nope. Okay. Should you be using it? We're not sure. And if you start having those discussions, um, it's a lot easier, easier to do when it's not the building on fire around you. Um, but, you know, like you said, the chaos of this moment, the, you start asking questions like, well, so are you using PS exec to do something? Uh, we're not sure. Well, we're going to block it then. And then you find out that, no, it's a part of a critical service that somebody wrote a script, batch shell script a while back and uses it. Okay, so now we got to figure out how to exempt the legitimate versus the not so legitimate. Right, and having all of those things figured out ahead of time, especially I love that you brought up TeamViewer because that's one of my favorites. Because for those of you who don't know, uh, TeamViewer and other things, um, basically they're used to access systems remotely. And so there are a lot of them that uh, IT groups use because they're free, uh, open so you know, they're like, oh, we have to, you know, because people are trying to fix problems and help people out. And in this remote world that we live in, that is become increasingly, you know, happening more. And so there's some admin in some country because everyone's a global organization now. And you're like, wait, is should someone be RDPing in from, you know, Nigeria to your system? And then like, if you don't know the answer to that, that's a problem. Like you need to be able to say, if I could say they're like, yes, this is expected behavior. Cool. But if it's, I don't know, I have to go figure out how to find somebody in Nigeria to figure out if they are supposed to be using this. That's going to take us a long time to figure to to sort through those weeds. That reminds me of the story of the this guy who outsourced his uh, work to a guy in India, and the company took a a couple of years to figure that one out. <laughs> oh, I love that one. Yeah, because he was just outsourcing it, but they just didn't know, and then like they found it through geolocation. That was yeah, I thought it was good. So one of the things we run into a lot with our customers is that they uh, tend to have uh, some or a lot north-south visibility 
but they're lacking east-west visibility within their own networks. Uh, they don't keep central logs of endpoints. They don't look at flows inside the network. Is this something you come across a lot? No, uh, <laughs> well, it's, you know, I, I think we can all attest that it's hard, right? Like knowing like... Logging isn't free. Well, you know, sometimes it can be. But for the most part, like doing something effectively, it takes process and planning and investment. And so saying, I want to see east to west traffic, that often is at the bottom. You look at, you know, my the security wants I have. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to sacrifice this one because I just don't have the money to invest in it. But when we are investigating and want to find out how did somebody move laterally through the environment, that east to west traffic is our best friend. So it's always very sad when we come in or, you know, somebody thinks that they have it because they have something environment they're using operationally. And they're like, no, that traffic lasts for an hour and then it's dumped. So definitely seeing it. Um, there are certain technology solutions. This is a Cisco podcast, so I will uh, say Cisco uh, Network Analytics is a great tool for looking. Uh, we, but I'm honestly serious. It's a great tool for for collecting that flow and looking for what's happening system to system. Um, but definitely, I think just that logging in general and trying to suss out like what do I keep, what don't I keep, is you know has always been a struggle for this industry. And as we move more into the cloud base world. I don't think it's going to change that much. We're just moving the problem to a someone else's computer, but I still need to know what's happening with that traffic. Yeah, I, I think that we could probably do an entire uh, podcast on just zero trust network architecture and logging and how important that is, but then also how the heck do you pay for it? Um, because all of the major providers of like log aggregation, et cetera, know that they have a very in in need product and they price it accordingly and then the storage vendors um, like to price their spinny disks well not even spinny disks anymore um, very um, non-attractively when it comes to storing a bunch of logs so you know every every industry you know it's like oh, oh okay how much can i spend on disks for logs versus how much you know how, how many logs do I want to keep versus what are they going to give me, you know? Yeah. Well, and then we're also trying to think about what are we backing up, right? Because in turn, you know, in this day of ransomware, how, you know, how do you protect those backups? And that's another thing that you have to think about in terms of storage, right? And, you know, so we think we have to deal with log storage and we have to deal with backup storage. And that can be, you can be you know, a pretty hard question to answer especially for a larger organization. We've come a long way from when programmers had to fit everything into 640 kilobytes. So I think I think logging is a quite interesting topic because it leads back to our discussion about cybersecurity. The logging component of the cybersecurity questionnaire was two pages. So where that was something like very basic in the past, being able to log pretty much north-south and even at east-west traffic is now a requirement. They also want to know a lot about how quickly can you react to a new exposed CVE. Because if I look a little if I look a little bit when a new critical CVE comes out, I think within 15-30 minutes we see the first attempts on our firewalls knocking our door or or scan ports and so on. 
So for me, the logging discussion is more like uh, you need to become smarter in what you log, how you log it, and how you digest the data. Typical example, NetFlow. NetFlow is, yeah, east-west traffic would be awesome to have in your seam, but you can probably no longer afford it. So what you need to do is come up with ways where you say, what is a normal behavior? What is an unnormal behavior? And you focus on the unnormal behavior. That will take experience, that will take time, but that's a little bit where the industry is moving to. Well, and I think also beyond normal, yes, definitely, what is normal, what is not, what is good, what is bad? Those are very key questions for, you know, doing that, do you know, doing cybersecurity and doing investigations as well. Um, but I think also knowing what do I really care about in my environment, right? What are, like, if I... What what do I need to function as a business? And then what do I do to really protect those assets? How do I look with what is going on to the things I really care about? And focusing your resources on those things that have the most maximum impact. And then sometimes also those quickest wins, right? So All right. So Liz, any last comments or points you'd like to make before we close out? Anything we didn't cover that you were hoping we would? Oh, there, you know, we could talk about incident response and security for days. Well, that's what we do, right? We talk about it for days and days, and we do things with the days and days. Uh, no, just thank you guys for having me. I uh, really appreciate it and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you guys again. We'll have to have you back. Or we'll have you back. We'll have you on my podcast. and That'd be fa- That would be fun. I like that idea. All right. Well, um, if you want to continue your journey and learn more about today's topic, please check out the links provided in the show notes below. And of course, I always have to remind you, you can subscribe to Cisco Champion Radio on your favorite streaming platform and receive alerts in our latest releases. So wherever you're listening to us, make sure to click on that subscribe or follow button now. Thank you for listening in. See you again next week. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.